Thank you uh, very much, Philip. Good morning, everybody. Really good to be here. It's uh, a joy uh, for Kay and myself to be. This is Kay over here, um, sitting here. She's uh, often mistaken for my daughter, (laughs) which really cheers me up a great deal, um, especially when she doesn't deny that she's not. So... uh, (laughs) But uh, a joy to be uh, with you. Thank you so much, uh, Philip, for your kind welcome. We pulled into town last night and had a lovely meal uh, with Philip and Hermie. She cooked us a beautiful meal, uh, which she's going to do for all of you tonight. Just stop by. Uh, Just kidding. But a really lovely time uh, and uh, great to be here. I preach a lot. Um, We were in uh, Israel and Jordan until Wednesday uh, on a 12-day trip there, so I I was counting up that I shared 25 times in that 12-day period. Next weekend, I'm going to be back at Timberline Church in Colorado, uh, where Kay and I are based. I'm a teaching pastor there. We have four services uh, every every weekend, the same sermon, the same outline, the same points, and the same spontaneous humor throughout the, um, the four sessions. And so I preach a lot. I said to Kay, Uh, recently, I preached so much, uh, I actually get sick of the sound of my own voice. And she smiled knowingly and said, I understand completely (laughs) how you feel. So um, anyway, really good to be here. And uh, I want to just, Sally prayed uh, an interesting prayer during our worship time, that we would be able to be honest today, that this would be an honest time. And and I want to start, I want to kick off right away by uh, by being honest and uh, just telling you something that I felt a, a whisper from the Lord during our worship time that Sally and the team led us in. I, I found myself, I've developed a bit of a head cold overnight, which is why I'm armed and dangerous with the Kleenex and I'm high on Lemsip and I was going to come up here with a couple of Vic inhalers stuck up my nose, but it would look unseemly. Um, but um, I, I have to tell you that having had a busy time of ministry over the last month around the UK and then the Holy Land, Um, um, I found myself, we're going back to Colorado on Wednesday, and I found myself, even though we planned this three years ago, uh, looking at this weekend as a bit of a ministry assignment, just a ministry assignment, uh, which I always take uh, great care about, and I'm privileged to do that. But during our worship time this morning, I felt like the Lord whispered to me that this is a treat for me. And it really is. I already feel like this is a treat. I have been soaking up just in sharing, uh, hearing some of your story, knowing about lovely people who have served us with sound equipment from six o'clock this morning. And bumping into you already, I already feel nourished in my own soul. And so uh, this is not a day for me just to talk and tomorrow morning talk and then leave here and go to the airport. This is a a treat and it really is an honor um, to be here. Um, I've got some books available um, and I never want to overstate the value of my books. That would be wrong and inappropriate, wouldn't it? Uh, But it is God's will that you buy them. So... (laughs) Just kidding. Some of you are writing things down. Don't write that down. Um, um, But uh, there's a number of books here. Um, This morning I'm going to be talking about uh, uh, Elijah uh, in this first session uh, and this book, Faith for All Seasons. Uh, I'd love you to explore his uh, his story. 
Um, Philip Yancey's commended this, this book as a, a way of looking a little deeper at the Elijah narrative. And there's a DVD as well uh, around that. And then this has just come out um, in the last few weeks. It's called Notorious, an integrated study of the rogue scoundrels and scallywags of Scripture. Uh, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? First Corinthians 10 tells us that we can learn much from the negative example of Israel. And often the bad people in the Bible, if we can describe them thus, uh, we overlook their, their, them as characters. What can we learn from them? How can we avoid some of their mistakes? And so I've examined uh, people like, like uh, Jezebel or Michal, daughter of Saul, or Judas Iscariot, Herod the so-called great, um, Cain, and looked at these stories and this is a book. It's also a small group study. There are discussion starters in there. There are also daily Bible reading notes as well for a nine-week study. So you could utilize this. And there's a video that goes with it as well if you wanted to use it in a small group setting. Um, we'd like an FBI situation room that we've set up with 10 minutes of teaching each day. All kinds of resources in there. So those are available and uh, we get author's discounts, so, so do you, and there are any, um, any three books for £25, and you get uh, the book about things I learned from my grandchildren, you get that free, and we can take uh, cash or checks or credit cards or chickens, anything you've got really, so uh, those are available. I should also mention before we jump into this, that Ruth and Anne are with us from Compassion, I'm an ambassador for Compassion, and they are with us uh, through the day, and if you've got questions about the opportunity and privilege of being able to change the life of a child, then they are standing by ready to talk with you. So this theme, it's, it's kind of odd, isn't it? This theme that we've got for the day, uh, where do you live? Where do you live is our theme. Um, at Timberline recently, we were talking as pastors and uh, asking the question, what do we most hear from people in the Timberline um, congregation? And what we found is that people said, uh, they re- we re- found it was reported back, people often said, as followers of Jesus, they would say something like, I-, I didn't think it would turn out this way. I didn't think life would turn out this way. And having decided my theme for the day, what I like to do when I'm visiting a church like you, is to visit you before I visit you. And so I've been doing that online Uh, October the 6th, uh, Patrick Reagan was here. Patrick's a friend of ours. And uh, he used that phrase, actually, in his message to you. Uh, He he actually prayed for people for whom it was true things hadn't turned out the way that they wanted. David Sylvester, I believe, um, talking about his journey uh, into early onset dementia and the sense that God has really answered prayer. And I have to say... One of the reasons this is a treat for me today is to hear his very poignant words that he spoke to you when he said, you have been part of the answer. And I thought, wow, what an amazing, beautiful statement uh, to make. And and so here we've got this, this idea of where we live, where we find ourselves. And just so we know what's going to happen today, um, we're going to talk And by the way, all of these um, sessions are subject to change, okay? So if it doesn't go well, we'll be moving in a completely different direction. Uh, But um, no, we're going to look at Jonah, who was living in a hot rage, uh, a place of anger. Uh, We're going to look at Martha, who was living in the fast lane. We're going to talk about busyness and distraction. Uh, 
We're going to talk about Daniel, who found himself living in a strange city, the city of Babylon. He lived there in what I'd like to call a second-choice world. And then we're going to talk in this first session about Elijah, who found himself in a dark cave and was living in depression and fear. So that's what we're going to be doing. And uh, it all sounds a bit heavy, but hopefully we're going to smile along the way. Um, I'm already catching a sense from you that you folks don't mind a bit of fun. Is that... Is that is that true? Okay. Um, every now and again I go to churches where fun is forbidden. It's like a gathering of the frozen chosen, you know. Uh, there's joy, but it's really deep. It's really, really, really deep. Um, so we're going to have some fun too as we, as we look at this. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Kings 19, please. 1 Kings 19 It's quite a lengthy reading, um, but I believe that there is power in allowing Scripture to just speak for itself. And so, quite a lengthy reading. 1 Kings 19, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Whichever reading or whatever version you've got, do follow along. And uh, there's 18 verses, so if you've got the Amplified Version, um, you can finish the reading tomorrow. So, that'll be fine. 1 Kings 19 says this, When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he'd killed all the prophets of Baal. This was after the Mount Carmel showdown with the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the gods strike me and even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who've already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast, the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazel to be king over Aram. And then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Mahola, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazel will be killed by Jehu. Those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. 
Yet I preserved 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Sometimes uh, going to an event like this can feel just a little bit intimidating. You've set aside a, a, a day um, to look at Scripture and be together, and you maybe it wasn't perfect in your home this morning. Um, if you've got kids, the kids were playing up. Uh, breakfast cereal was being distributed, um, not in their mouths, but around the room. And biblical prophecy was being fulfilled because it was like the battle of Armageddon in your kitchen. And then you show up here and you look around at all of these mildly pleasant looking Baptists and you think, um, can I really do this? Sometimes going to leadership conferences does that to me. Occasionally I get to go to leadership conferences, not to speak, but to attend. And just the name of the conference is intimidating. Bionic Apostles and Prophets together for the salvation of the universe by next Tuesday. You know, something, something like that. And I show up and I look at all of these fluorescent, glow-in-the-dark, anointed leaders who've all been singing hymns in the car and read Leviticus twice this morning. And, and then there's me, and I feel a little bit, like, in, intimidated. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? And, and Christmas is coming. You're going to get those Christmas newsletters that you hate. And those wonderful Christian families who were all like, so, so nice. And little Jimmy plays 97 musical instruments and is fluid in Greek and Hebrew. And let's face it, you hate them, don't you? You're just, you know, intimidation. Well, I went to one of these, um, I went to one of these conferences, felt a bit intimidated. I've told this story a lot because it's marked in my mind. And I went down for breakfast. Kay was not with me. And this lady is sitting opposite me at this Christian conference center having breakfast. And this lady, she sort of looked anointed. Do you know what I mean? She sort of looked like anointed. And I, I said, good morning, my name is Jeff. And I thought she'd say, yes, I know. <laughs> I, I said, how are you? Uh, she introduced herself. I said, how are you? She said, I'm all right. I said, have you had a good week? She said, not really. I've had a bit of a rough week. And outwardly, I, I went, oh, I'm sorry. But inwardly, I thought, oh, good. Because anointed woman, anointed, has had a bit of a rough week. She's normal like me. So I, I said, well, what happened this week? She said, well, she said, I, I took my mum and our kids to the car wash. And I thought, as outings go, that's a bit sad, isn't it? You know, come on, family, I've got a token. Let's go to the car wash. Woo! And uh, she said, we got to the car wash. And uh, she said, I put the token in. And then she said, I, um, I thought, I better check the window. This was a long time ago. This was what, you, I'm doing this. Any younger people here, there was a day in history when we did this with windows in the car. So she said, I thought, I better just check the window. She said, I, I checked the window and the window fell down all the way into the door. And she said, the brushes are spinning and it's, they're coming towards us. And I'm looking around the car thinking, we are all going to drown. So now I'm getting quite excited. And uh, I said, well, what did you do? What did you do? She said, well, I looked around the car to see if I could find something to put into the window to create an airtight seal that would prevent us from getting wet. And she said, the only thing I could find that would fit was my own bottom. 
Yeah. So, Edward, I apologize so early in this conference for using the word bottom. Some Christians get upset when I tell this story. You know, he just said bottom. You know, you'd think Christians didn't have bottoms. Yes, I used to have a bottom, but then I found Jesus. And that's all behind me. No, no, don't stop that. So this anointed woman stuck her rear end out of the window. I mean, I was crying with joy. But trying to look pastorally supportive at the same time. I had been intimidated. And now my intimidation was gone because I realized she was as stupid as me. (laughs) Intimidation is what this story is about. It's intimidation uh, and it's unusual because it's Elijah. And we normally associate Elijah with strength. The ancient rabbis taught that that Elijah was an angel. Such were, were the incredible things that he did. But James, in his letter in the New Testament, drives a truck through that idea. He says, no, Elijah was a man just like us. He's confronting and he's bewildered. He's confused. I mean, he's done some great things. He's raised the dead. Anyone raised, anyone here raised the dead this week? Just think back. Monday? You got out of bed. (laughs) Well done, well done. Almost took as much faith, didn't it, really? Raising the dead, calling down fire from heaven. I mean, he's amazing. But now, he's not. And he's not praying any great prayers. He's praying a short prayer. Short prayers can be quite good. You often, you often see short prayers on Christian refrigerators, don't you? What is a Christian refrigerator? It's a refrigerator owned by a Christian. And you see prayers like the prayer of St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. That's that's a good one. Or uh, Anne Lamont's prayer, which I really like. Help me, help me, help me, help me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I like that. That's good. But, But here's one that you don't normally see on a Christian refrigerator, and it comes to us from Elijah. Lord, I have had enough. Kill me now. Amen. That's all he's got. Why had he had enough? Well, he's intimidated. Not only that, but he'd been living at a very difficult time. By the way, every generation thinks they're living at the worst time. That is the current disease, if I might say. And I say this as a Brit. And things are pretty challenging right now and turbulent. But every generation thinks it's living at the worst possible time. And there's a leadership crisis in the nation back then. And for six decades, Israel had been rotting in moral and spiritual decay. The golden age of David and Solomon was finished. And and get this, everybody, six kings had come and gone in a 58-year period. So they're is political instability. Now the seventh king is on the throne, and the Bible says he was worse than all the previous six. And his name is Ahab, and he's married to the infamous Jezebel. And largely due to her influence, the nation is flooded with Baal worship, which included child sacrifice. Uh, Those who worshipped the Lord were persecuted. Uh, Jezebel herself came from a family of blood. Her own father 
uh, murdered his brother in order to come to power. And uh, Jezebel really is the Cruella de Vil of the Old Testament. She's a nasty piece of work. The, the New Bible Dictionary, which I think was written by a British person, it says of Jezebel, she was a forceful and domineering personality. That's a bit like saying the atom bomb's a bit loud. I mean, it is the understatement, isn't it? And now, Elijah gets a message from the palace. You're going to die. And he tumbles into depression. And he is burned out. And uh, he's got mind lock, by the way. Mind lock. Did you notice that when God spoke to him and said, what are you doing there? Twice he repeated the same speech, word for word. And that's some of what happens when we feel deeply sad. Uh, We get into a a mental rut uh, that becomes familiar, even addictive. And we go through the same same routines. And uh, he's really rather sad. Uh, 25 years ago, maybe somewhere around there, um, I spent a year in clinical depression. Um, I was a Christian leader and writing books and preaching and teaching. And I spent about a year clinically depressed. And not only did I feel bad, but I felt bad because I felt bad. Anyone identify with that at all? When I became a Christian, I became a Christian at the age of 17, back in 1847. And uh, when I became a Christian, we used to sing some really daft songs back then. Uh, You may recognize or remember some of them. And having said what I've just said, I'm really hoping you're not still singing um, the ones I'm going to mention. We used to sing, I am H-A-P-P-Y. Does anyone remember that? (laughs) I am H-A-P-P-Y. I am H-A-P-P-Y. Another great... Another great theological classic was, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. No, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. If you pack up all your troubles, then they'll vanish like a bubble if you only take the trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. Enough to make you (laughs) V-O-M-I-T. And I wasn't H-A-P-P-Y. I was N-A-F-F-E-D-O-F-F. Naft off. Naft coming from the Greek word naphousin. No, it doesn't. I'm making that out. So. Some of you were writing that down. You were going to share it with the home group. Ooh. And uh, I, was, I was pretty sad. And uh, some of my Christian friends weren't that helpful because they were on a safari to fix me. You ever meet Christians like that? They can be really well-meaning, but it, they don't always say the most helpful things. So we... So we hear you haven't got the victory, Jeff. I said, well, apparently not. Apparently not. Some of my friends, I think, had previously been employed by Job. And, um, and uh, well, what can we do to help? And I really felt like saying, how about going away forever? That would be a great start. And, and people would say things like, well, why don't you just get over it? Just get over it. And I thought, I thought, thanks for that. If I'd have just known that, get over it. I could have got over it. Not. And it it felt really difficult. And I felt guilt as well as sadness. 
Then I started looking at the Bible, and I found Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. I found Jonah, who got so sad he stomped out of Revival Town. I, I studied the Psalms and found the, most, the three of the most frequent prayers in the Psalms go like this. Why? How long? Where have you gone? I found the words of the Apostle Paul, who wrote to the contentious Corinthians in, first, in 2 Corinthians 1. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Imagine imagine getting that in a Christmas newsletter. I found Jesus in Gethsemane in the biblical record. My soul is overwhelmed. The word there, barrio, to be pressed down, is from the, the root word of barometer for pressure. I believe that Jesus experienced depression in Gethsemane. And here is Elijah living in that cave of depression. So, so what can we learn? And can I just say, uh, not only in this session, but throughout this day and tomorrow morning, I already know this about you as a church, having listened to some of the teaching here. I know that you're not the kind of church where someone stands up and says, here's five ways out of depression that all begin with the same letter. It's not that way here. I thank God for the, the biblical and human teaching that I've briefly been able to tune into. But let me share, I hope, some reflections. The first thing is this. The first thing is the pathway to maturity often passes through disillusionment. The pathway to maturity often passes through disillusionment. Reflecting on Elijah's story, think about this. First Kings 18 is Mount Carmel. It's fire from heaven. It's everyone, it's, it's everyone present there repenting. It's the end of the prophets of Baal. Did, um, did Elijah think, it's revival time. The nation's Surely, this miracle has happened. I'm going to get a message from the palace that says, come back, all is forgiven. In fact, come back and tell us about forgiveness. But he doesn't. It doesn't turn out the way he wanted it to be, perhaps. I've, um, I've always treated disillusionment as an enemy. I now treat it as a gift. I don't want to be cynical. I want to be skeptical. I don't want to be silly and just accept anything that comes along. But disillusionment is a gift because when you're disillusioned, you are divested of an illusion and you embrace a reality. So disillusionment is a really good thing. If you, if you were born into a healthy family, you were born into an illusion. And the illusion that you were born into went like this. You're the center of the universe. That was the illusion you had when you were a child, a baby. Did you need food back then? Well, that's all right. Just scream. They'll bring it. I mean, forgive me. I hope you don't think I'm being a a little naughty here. Um, But um, back then, when you were a baby, did you need to poo? Just poo. It's all right. Just poo. Someone will take care of it. You try that when you're 25. Now, 
You can tell I'm feeling relaxed here, can't you? (laughs) Now, you have been divested of the illusion that the world sort of circles around you, and you embrace reality. But the trouble is, there, there are so many illusions out there. Hollywood sells in its romantic comedies, Hollywood sells an illusion about relationships. Have you noticed those beautiful couples that Hollywood creates? No one snores, do they? No one drools on the pillow. And when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is kiss. Yuck! There's none of that morning breath that can knock you off your feet at 50 yards. It's all an illusion. And so what can happen is we can have illusions about life, we can have illusions about marriage. By the way, you can have illusions about church. It's going to be exactly what I want it to be. I'm going to sit in the seat that I always sit in. The chair that Jesus gave me. (laughs) The temperature will be right, perfect to my requirements. Sally and others who lead worship will always pick the songs that are my favorites. It's an illusion. And when we break through the illusion and embrace the reality and commit to the reality rather than the myth, then we're heading towards maturity. And so Elijah is, uh, is disillusioned. By the way, can I just say this before I move on? Jesus had to spend most of his time disillusioning people. The Pharisees who want him to, wanted him to dance to a legalistic tune. Even his disciples who wanted him to be a military messiah who would kick out those hated Romans. Don't do the cross thing, Jesus, Peter is effectively saying. And Jesus had to shatter their illusions in order to invite them to embrace reality. One of the things we might want to do following our time together is just look in our own lives at areas of disillusionment. And then ways in which we might commit to the reality rather than sulk. Strong, blunt words, but perhaps an exercise that could aid our maturity. The second thing is this, fear. Fear is the enemy of faith. Fear is the enemy of faith. Elijah was afraid, verse 3 says, and he fled for his life. Now think about this. This guy had done so well. But if you look carefully at Jezebel's technique, it was very specifically engineered to create fear. So she could have sent an assassin. But she didn't need to. Because a messenger would be equally effective. A messenger containing a threat. And then she's very graphic, by the way, in her threat. Uh, Scholars tell us that when Jezebel issued this threat, Elijah would have had in his mind what's known as a self-imprecatory oath. It was a custom of the day. Look this way, let me demonstrate it. Jezebel would have stood in the palace and she would have done something like this. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you are not like one of those. That would have been the visual in Elijah's mind when he heard this. And then there's bluster in this. In the Septuagint version of this story, uh, Jezebel says, as sure as I am Jezebel, queen, and as sure as you are Elijah, you're going to die. She's playing a power game to stoke up the maximum fear. And, and now, uh, I think Elijah felt out of control. 
Because he's always been in control. You know, like um, when you've got a remote for your TV. Uh, how many of you have got a, a TV with a remote? Raise your hand. Okay. And how many of you never raise your hand, whatever the question is, from the pulpit? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Elijah's like a man with a remote. Uh, we need a drought, Elijah. First Kings 17. Announce it. Got it, Lord. Done. Uh, we need oil to be multiplied. Click. We need a dead boy to be raised. That's done. Uh, we need fire to fall from heaven. Yes, indeed. And now there's a threat from Jezebel. And he, he's out of control. And he's afraid. He panics. He runs. His faith becomes a theory because he told the widow in Zarephath not to be afraid. Now he is. He's really confused because he runs for his life and he prays for death. That's not bright. He's alone. He dismisses his servant. He's immobilized. He just wants to sleep. His self-talk is paralyzed. Mentioned that earlier. Where has fear, brothers and sisters, where has fear taken a hold of our lives? What is it that in the shadows of the middle of the night, does anybody like me, you discover that Goliath, the Goliath of fear, triples in height during the night? Yes? Your imagination goes crazy. A friend of mine told me recently, lovely follower of Jesus, he said, he said, I'm learning to actually stare at my fears and consider the worst possibility, stare it down. Not try and pretend that nothing could ever happen, but stare it down prayerfully and say, well, even if that, even if that remote possibility occurred, God, I'm trusting that you'll be with me in that fear. What are we afraid of? And then thirdly, there's identity. There's an identity lapse here. Um, some of that was driven by shame. And we're going to look at that more tomorrow. Uh, but in verse 4, Elijah says, Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. Well, first of all, Elijah, who said you were any better? But Elijah's name in the Hebrew, Eliyah, it means the Lord, he is God. But now... Now that sense of identity has is, is vanished. I, I really believe that that's one of the reasons why the New Testament is so loaded with identity statements about us. Reminding us who we are. Anybody seen The Lion King? Seen The Lion King? Yeah. There's little Simba. Little Simba, right? Remember Simba? Somebody going, Simba. Which book of the Bible is Simba? It's the Lion King. Um, there's, there's Simba, and there's good King Mufasa. Remember good King Mufasa? And there's the evil character, whose name is Scar. And uh, little Simba makes a foolish decision which causes the death of his father, and he is overwhelmed by shame. And Scar, evil Scar, who wants the throne, he says, run away, Simba. Run away. And one night, Simba is uh, far from the Pride Lands. 
and he has a, a dream or a vision or something of his father, King Mufasa. And Mufasa says, Simba! Simba! You have forgotten who you are. Remember, Simba, who you are. I've been practicing that for the last two days. <laughs> and once again, galvanized by his identity, Simba returns to the Pride Lands. Let me just say this, ladies and gentlemen. This is one of the reasons why I am so passionate about the value of local church. And it's one of the reasons why, for me, this is a treat. Because when I get around the local church and hear their stories and their service to the community and what God has done, I am reminded, ladies and gentlemen, of the power of our corporate togetherness in the reinforcement of our identity. Because you see, when we get together on Sunday mornings or in home groups or whatever, and we sing our songs and we pray our prayers and, and we open the book and we hear the word taught, suddenly, once again, our identity is reinforced and energized. And as we, as we take bread and wine, a dramatic, uh, Jesus not just leaving us a few words, but leaving us a drama a Eucharistic drama to once again reinforce not only who he is, but who we are because of him. That's why I, I so believe in local church. When I got here last night, Philip and Edward had left the, the booklet, the welcome booklet, um, at the place where we're staying to, so we could see a little more about you. And I opened the first page and I think on the very first page it says something about we're, we're family. And I got an email yesterday. There's something we're doing back at Timberline and they're going to play my favorite song. And they said, what's your favorite song? And you probably think it's, you know, something by Graham Kendrick or it's um, We Are Family by Sister Sledge. I love this idea, this truth, not just an idea, of the local church, the hope of the world, being family. Family. Reinforcing our identity, serving together to make a difference. Identity is vital. Well, the last thing I want to say, uh, it's probably the last thing but in this session, but we preachers, we, we do that all the time, guys, don't we? We, we say, and now, in conclusion... We do that to give you hope. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? And then we blether on for another 15 minutes, don't we? Well, let me just say this. Feelings often lie. Feelings often lie to us. You see, in verse 10, Elijah says to the Lord, I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. The French novelist, Anay Nin, said, we don't see things as they are, but as we are. And a combination of disillusionment, tiredness, fear, a cocktail that has caused Elijah to be deeply sad, hopeless, and he's not seeing straight. So a few things about that. Um, first of all, check your fuel. Check the fuel in your life. Are you replenishing physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually? 
The angel of the Lord cooked him breakfast. I love that. There is an angel with the special role of breakfast cooking. And people, preachers, they say, And why did our Lord provide breakfast for the weary prophet? And I have an answer to that. He was hungry. And he needed the refueling of food. Sometimes we Christians, we freak out because the shadows come in our emotions and we think that the devil's camping in our bathroom. And a good night's sleep would be a good idea. And checking the diet and and exercise. By the way, let me say this. If you battle depression and your physician says medication would help, take it. I still meet Christians who've been told by well-meaning Job's comforters, oh, well, if you take medication, it's a lack of faith. Oh, really? You break your arm, you put it in a sling. What we do is we, well-meaningly, but we kick people when they're down. I took medication during that year and it really helped me. Check that you're seeing straight. Uh, we, we, we've got a car here that we use when we're in England and it's a ridiculous statement. We're not going to take it to America, are we? Uh, there's not a ferry. And um, we've got this car. It's got 120,000 miles on it. It's parked out there. And we've had it for about eight years. And I said to Kate recently, um, I like this car, but I don't like the blue interior. I've not liked it for years. I wish it was, I wish it was a black interior. I like, I'd like that. And I am blue-black colorblind. So after eight years of mumbling about the interior, silently I shared this with Kay and she said, uh, it's black. It's black. It's been, it's been black interior for the last eight years. If you'd have just mentioned it, I could have probably saved you from simmering about it. But you see, I'm seeing blue. But it's not blue. It's black. And that is what weariness and depression and burnout can do to us. We don't see straight. And Elijah's not seeing straight. Uh, he says one truth and, and three lies. Well, not lies, but he's not seeing it correctly. He says, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty. Check, yeah, that's true. He says, the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. Hold on a minute, pal. They've just renewed it. On Mount Carmel. So you got, you got that wrong. He says, they've torn down your altars. Stop right there, Elijah. Step away from the myth. They just rebuilt an altar. And the fire of the Lord fell on it. He said, they've killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left. Step away from that. There's 7,000. Do you see what's happening, ladies and gentlemen? Because of the condition that he's in, his eyesight, if you will, has been affected. And what does God say to him in all of this, just wrapping this up in conclusion for the second time? He says, go back the way you came. Sometimes it takes faith to stay as well as to go. And he says, anoint Hazel. Why anoint Hazel? Well, Hazel would be a foreign king to bring judgment upon Ahab and Jezebel. Anoint Jehu, why do that? Well, Jehu would be a replacement king for Ahab. 
and anoint Elisha. Why do that? Well, he will be your friend and he will also succeed you as prophet. So God gave him three instructions. So if this was a Hollywood movie, Elijah would do all three, wouldn't he? And we'd see him riding off into the distant sunset on a horse, the end. So what did he do? Well, he did anoint Elisha, but he did not anoint Hazel. Elisha had to do that years later. And he did not anoint Jehu. Elisha had to do that years later. So he said, yes, no, no. And 13 years were wasted. Now at one level, I know I'm going to ask Sally and the team while I wrap this up to come back. But at one level, um, ladies and gentlemen, Elijah did so well. Um, but I'm, although I regret his disobedience, I'm heartened by the fact that the Bible tells us the truth about this man. Isn't it good that the Bible is not loaded with grinning heroes who glow in the dark and always get it right? Everything is broken, and so am I, and so are you. We're all in process. And one day it won't be so when the king comes and everything is complete. But in the meantime, brokenness is gradually being restored. The Bible is not a portrait of a series of glow-in-the-dark fluorescent souls. I did not, as a Christian leader, I did not wake up this morning, do a triple backflip out of bed, catching my tambourine as I flew through the air. The angel Gabriel handed me a cup of tea. I got up this morning and said, where's the lemsip? We're all busted. But the beauty of the king is being revealed through broken people. Sometimes walking very diligently with God. Sometimes I feel like my Christian walk is more of a Christian stagger. But a man who was living in the cave of depression and God met him there. I wonder if we could just have some keyboard for a moment and... uh, Thank you. I think in a few moments we're going to sing, God, I look to you. Is that right, Sally? You're where my help comes from. But before we do that, why don't we prepare our hearts to sing the song? I'm going to invite you to put your notebook down if you'd like to. And um, at the end of our second session, I'm going to be asking our ministry team to be available. And um, we're going to take time to specifically pray. But I'd like to, we haven't got time to hang around here to delay things. We've, we've got a day and a half together.
Um, and so I'd, I'd like to include you in a prayer if right now you're battling depression. I'd like us all to bow our heads and close our eyes, please. And there's no shame in being depressed. <clears throat> but I'd like this to be a private moment between us. I'd like to pray and then just invite a very simple first step response. Father, thank you for your tenderness. How beautiful you are. How kind and caring. Thank you for the treat of being with your precious people. Thank you, Lord, that our feelings are not the barometer of our spirituality. There are times, Lord, when we feel like we're, uh, we're on Mount Carmel and the sky is blue and our prayers are being answered and there are times when we feel like we're on Mount Horeb in a cave. And Lord, you know the uh, journeys of your people and where they are living right now. In these moments, Lord, we invite the tender work of your Spirit in our hearts to spark, to spark hope, inclusion. That people who felt bad for feeling bad will have that shroud lifted off of them. People who've been faithful and have not felt faith-filled because they didn't get the prayer answered the, the way they wanted to get it answered and yet you're celebrating them today as heroic because they've trusted you anyway. And there are people in this hall, Lord, and they're hemmed in by question marks. They still trust you. Look at them. Look at them. These are your people, Lord. May they know that you're looking at them. May they hear the whisper of your voice. May they know you to be the glory and the lifter up of their heads. Our eyes are closed at the moment. Mine are open. Please keep yours closed. I want to just include you in this prayer and again there'll be prayer ministry later. But if you find yourself battling some sadness, perhaps some depression at the moment, I want to just ask you just to lift up your hand. I want to just include you in a prayer. Could you do that right now? Thank you for doing that around the room. And you can put your hands down. So, Father, here's some open hands that are extended from open and thirsty hearts. You told us, Jesus, that the Comforter would come, the one who would draw alongside. And so as we sing our songs and pray our prayers, as we laugh together and have cups of tea and coffee, 
as we open the book today. Nourish especially these souls. May laughter be like medicine. May they recover the the sense of gladness that comes from being part of your crowd, your family. We whisper our prayers to you now. Why don't we just say to the Lord, maybe in a sentence, what we'd like to say to the Lord. Give me wisdom. And I invite you, if you're able, please, just to stand with me together. Thank you. And we're going to sing the, the song again. It's a beautiful song. But included in the song is a prayer that we might see things God's way. Can I ask you to work with me in this moment? And I'd like to ask you to think about where you might have been seeing things in a way that's not quite straight. Take the luxury of a few seconds to think about that. Where have we been seeing things in a way that's about us rather than what really is? And then we'll sing this song as a prayer that we'll see straight. We'll see it God's way.
we'll see what really is. Lord, I look to you. God, I look to you.